This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. This is their story, but it's got to be pointed out that the collateral damage of this report has just been extraordinary. Two coaches have stepped aside and their careers hang in the balance. One of them is Alistair Clarkson, the biggest name in the game. A club's connection with any Indigenous player, any player actually, man or woman, must be respectful, it must be supportive, it must be fuelled by that innate belief that all people are equal. The bit I found emotional, I think, was the Queen's scarf tied to the horse the corgis and when the family saluted. I thought that was, you know, incredibly moving. I just thought poor corgis, didn't you? Fergie and Andrew asked, there are so many other places I'd rather be living. <laughs> Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome everyone to episode 236 of Don't Shoot the Messenger, coming to you in a very different and somewhat sombre grand final week in light of the Massive, massive story and horrifying allegations that uh, broke on the ABC. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm with my friend and fellow podcaster, Corrie Perkin. Look, it's lovely to see you, despite all of that. It's a beautiful, wonderful week in Melbourne that has just been, um, unfortunately, overshadowed by darkness. Well, it has. Hi, Caro. Hello, everybody. As a Hawthorne supporter, I am in shock. And um, as you can imagine, this footy story has really uh, taken over the news uh, agenda, particularly as we lead, as we go into the lead up to the grand final this weekend. But I must say, Jane, the poppies that you have put on our desk today are absolutely beautiful. They're but, stunning, Jane. Are they from your garden? They are. I've been growing them and to pick a little bunch of them to bring in for you this morning was awesome. We are going to um, head to a lighter note at some point in the show. Corrie, you've got a cracker book and a cracker screen with the royal flavour, I understand. And I have to make an apology because I gave you a beautiful summer recipe last week um, from my daughter Clementine that I can assure you is beautiful. But I should have given a right royal recipe, I think, because there are a lot of functions. As you know, Corrie, people stayed up late to watch that unbelievable funeral. I thought it was a very moving and very just such a dignified but um, quite extraordinary production that um, sent off Queen Elizabeth II. And people made some unbelievable recipes. Anna from the op shop, I know, made an incredible fish pie. There were smoked mussels on white bread. There were prawns because the Queen liked prawns, but not oysters. And our friend, we call her a friend now, (laughs) not a nanny or a slave, Joe Campion. Well, she, I reckon she topped the lot. This is a recipe that's going to be fantastic for summer as well. Great. So I look, I look forward to telling yes. you about that. And we will have a, a little bit of a post-mortem on the royal funeral. But, Caro, first, uh, something from our mailbag. Don't forget, potties, we love receiving your emails and your notes on Instagram. It does make us feel good. We read all of them. Um, Pam Fuller via email said, Dear, Caro, Dear Corrie and Caro, I absolutely love your show and have told many of my friends. Thank you so much for producing such an interesting and fun podcast. I recently went to Aru for my birthday on the recommendation of your daughter, Clementine, Caro, and absolutely loved it. Please thank her for the recommendation. And I made sure I told the management who recommended it. There you go. There's a freebie for coming Clem's way. (laughs) Thanks again for all your hard work. Oh, Pam, it's not hard work. We just jump out of bed, put our lippy on and have a chat. So I'm glad you're part of it. And she says, I don't know how you find the time to keep up with all the books and cinema, but I'm very grateful. Well, Pam... Carol and I have no life, particularly in Grand Final Week. I really wanted today, Carol, to do the review of the new Maggie O'Farrell book, Marriage Portrait, but it has been a big week in you've, footy and in home life. You've abandoned so. your homework for the show. I'm very unimpressed. I know, but I we'll looking... do it next week. But maybe you can read it in real time as well once the footy's over and we can perhaps have a chat together. Anyway, I look Pam, thanks to it. for your lovely message. M-I-F-F-D, I think this is on Instagram, said, would love to hear the lovely Alice in Frames on the podcast as a guest. So would I. And, in fact, she is coming to the Sorrento Writers Festival next April, according to her publisher. And we would love to have Alice in Frames because she's a, um, a Mornington Peninsula girl. We'd love to have her in the podcast. So we might pursue that. Leave that one to me. Brilliant. Well, that, that's great news, Corrie. And um, 
as I've said many times, I absolutely love all her. I love all her recipes. So um, that's one of the great new books this year. So um, Russell Jackson, the ABC journalist who has written some unbelievable investigative pieces in recent years, including a pretty horrifying and harrowing account of Robert Muir's version of events of his time in the old VFL and his time at the St Kilda Football Club. Absolutely devastating. Russell Jackson's piece landed early on Wednesday morning. The AFL received a report into basically racism at the Hawthorne Football Club. The the truth-telling that took place was told by a lot of young Indigenous players who were at Hawthorne back in the 2000s. And, And a lot of the stuff focuses on what happened between the years of 2013 and 15. Um, this is their story, but but just briefly, it, it, it's got to be pointed out that the collateral damage of this report has just been extraordinary. Two coaches have been have stepped aside and their careers hang in the balance. One of them is Alistair Clarkson, the biggest name in the game, just started at the Hawthorne, at the North Melbourne Football Club. The other is Chris Fagan, sort of seen as the game's father figure and had things gone differently last Friday night in, in a preliminary final, he might have been getting ready for a grand final this week. I'm I not, thought about that. I thought what a distraction this story would have been for I'll, him. Well, I'm not sure he would have been coaching. No. Um, I'm not sure what would have happened if the story hadn't broken and whether the AFL would have mustered the forces it's mustering at the moment to do a proper inquiry into what took place. But... They insist that they were doing this behind the scenes. They obviously didn't know the story was going to leak. And um, what we will hear in the coming days is that there will be a group of people, two of them will be Indigenous, two of them will be women, and they will investigate from both sides what actually happened. Because at the moment, as horrifying as these allegations are, they are allegations. And um, Alistair Clarkson has vehemently denied the allegations. Chris Fagan has certainly privately told people that he, for example, I don't think, I think he's saying he wasn't at the meeting where a player was allegedly urged to get his partner to have a termination. Um, that's just one of the, well, probably the worst, but one of mm. dozens of Cara, dreadful we, allegations. We should say before we go on that this this discussion will involve discussions about miscarriage and um, newborn death and also um, perinatal anxiety, depression, um, so uh, that's just a bit of an alert and um, we'll give you some context at the end of the segment. Caro, your, this, is really, this really began as your story and, um, and the, age, the team at The Age when you uh, sat down with Cyril Rioli and his partner Shannon a few months ago and discussed this and the toxic Hawthorne culture that, which surrounded Cyril's time there or latter years uh, and, of course, impacted his relationship. It well, didn't impact his relationship with Shannon, but impacted Shannon's relationship with the club. You really started the ball rolling on this one. And um, and the report, it, I mean, it's devastating as it is. Thank goodness we have it. Yeah, look, I think it's shocked even Cyril and Shannon. I don't think they were aware of some of the worst of the of the revelations. Um, and And obviously, neither was I. I mean... What happened to Cyril and Shannon obviously was horrifying, but I, I guess in hindsight barely scratched the surface of what this review has uncovered. It, it's been run by Philip Egan, former Richmond player, who now runs a company that deals with these, you know, devastating matters. Um, he spoke to a lot of people. He was shocked by what happened. I think it's broken his heart, to be honest. Um, his cousin Leon Egan was Hawthorne's Indigenous Liaison Officer, who I write extensively about at the time of the Cyril story. He went to the club and urged them, he said, you have to investigate this. Because Cyril spoke about a player, you know, the the word boong coming up in a conversation with a group of players. Um, He spoke about a player being separated, forcibly separated from living with his partner so he could focus on his footy. The devastating experience of one young Indigenous player coming to the club, an experience that should be a happy experience, but for so many was clearly not at Hawthorne. He spoke about the treatment of Shannon, the fact that they had an Indigenous liaison officer, were allegedly ploughing millions of dollars, receiving millions of dollars in the name of Indigenous sponsorship, but would only put on an Indigenous officer one day a week. And, And Leon Egan, that Indigenous officer, imagine how he's feeling now. 
He's heartbroken. He actually trained with the Hawthorne Football Club in the late 80s, but was later told you never would have got a game because there was a no blacks policy at Hawthorne at the time, something the club has now admitted in their reconciliation action statement. Um, but, you know, a story that was always told, but no one ever really believed. Um, so he's went, gone back to the club's done it to him twice, really. Um, so there were so many other people hurt and distraught by this. But what Russell Jackson's done, I think, is realise that the investigation was going on. I'm not even sure if he saw a copy of the report. He went and did his own investigations. And um, as the AFL said yesterday, there was a lot more in that ABC piece than was in the report commissioned by the Hawthorne Football Club that went to the AFL last week. So the timing is fascinating, absolutely fascinating, I reckon. Um, and the fact that it's happened in grand final week, at first I thought, I hope this isn't buried because it's grand final week, but it's sort of done the opposite. <laughs> it's overshadowed grand final week. And I think it's because people are finally having discredited Cyril. You know, a lot of his old teammates, a lot of the Hawthorne leaders rang me and said and blamed Shannon. Did you know, they really? Shannon was a bad influence. Cyril was happy until still, Shannon got even, in his Even ear. after he spoke so openly, they still oh, it was It was disgraceful, him. some of the stuff that was said to me. But these are men mm. who wanted to believe good and wanted to believe that Cyril was happy and just didn't know better. It, the ignorance has almost been as bad. The cover-up is almost, well, it's clearly not nearly as bad as what happened, but it's made it even worse. Look, there are a couple of things that I would like to comment about this. First of all, why do we have footy clubs in the 21st century? Is it to just win premierships and sponsorship and money? We know that, look at the, look at the TV rights, we know that the money is involved and we know premierships are important. But isn't it time that we also said club community life is also important? We value that as much as we do a premiership. Corrie, they say that all the time. Hawthorne they, was they a just, family club. They, they, I know, and they don't, they don't believe it. And this is what I'm so incredibly fed up with, this... There is overt racism, Caro. I mean, overt racism is in 2022 you have allegations of white males interfering in the reproductive rights of Indigenous people. So that's really overt racism. But the subtle... Which is obviously an allegation still, but the, yes. Yes, but, the, but the, subtle, the subtle racism occurs when people say, oh, I'm not racist, but... And even if they don't say the but, they don't act upon what is required. They don't get the sensitivities. They don't understand, for example, Indigenous connection with land and with family and with community. I mean, we could take a lot, we could could learn a lot from these sorts of things. A club's connection with any Indigenous player, any player actually, man or woman, must be, it must be respectful, it must be supportive, it must be um, fuelled by that innate belief that all people are equal, whether they're women whether they're Indigenous, whether they're um, from, from a Muslim background. And too often footy clubs, boards and fans and players who sledge people like Adam Goods, too often footy clubs demonstrate that they clearly do not possess that innate understanding, that innate belief. You can't just pay lip service here, um, you know, in order to field the best team possible. Well, the, 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 problem, the problem for the AFL is that First Nations people have been such a massive part of the AFL landscape. They've they've decorated it as well as anyone else. Some um, multiple, you know, we're talking in grand final week, multiple Norm Smith medals. You know, multi, multiple um, the, the the promotion that goes into the Dreamtime round, for example, the Sir Doug Nichols round, and the money the AFL makes about it, out of it, the money it receives from government as a result of its so-called proud work with Indigenous Australia. And yet two clubs have now done reports or investigations. There was a Do Better report overseen by Larissa Berent and, of course, now the Hawthorne situation, which was run by Phil Egan, and horrifying things have emerged. The report into the Adelaide Football Club's camp post-2017 and what was finally revealed in Eddie Betts's book because Eddie just didn't feel he could speak honestly and openly with his own football club. And if he did, he, he was, what he said, fell on deaf ears. Yeah, so, and that's another catalyst for this all coming about too. Your well, story, Eddie Betts's, you know, the thought of a referendum next year, voice to parliament, all of this stuff is now coming to the fore. Well, I think it needs to be. There needs to be an overall proper, no-holds-barred, truth-telling um, 
I think, inst- instigated by the AFL. Totally. And, and, and I, would if, go, I don't know whether the AFL is capable of this, Carol. I'm, I'm underwhelmed. Uh, you know, Indigenous Affairs Minister Linda Burney said yesterday, footy is not just about getting talent, setting them up in a house and hoping for the best. And I wonder whether the AFL truly gets that its commitment, particularly to Indigenous folk, has to be something much bigger than that. It's different. Women also are different. They have to be. Oh, Corrie, Corrie be... I, I think I think they understand that now. I think this, the penny, if the penny hadn't dropped, it has now. I mean, Gillan McLaughlin has been holding private talks with a group of senior Indigenous players now for, I think, at least a couple of years, and they meet every two or three or four months. And these people include people like Stephen May and Carl Amon and Sean Burgoyne and Charlie Cameron. I think he's listening to them. He listened when they said the wrong people investigated the Adelaide camp. They were ex-white cops and it wasn't it wasn't right. But you've said um, before that you, that Tanya Hosh's role, you've in the past on this podcast, you've questioned whether she has sort of an equal voice in, in Gillen's ear with other executives at the AFL? She's certainly for a long, long time not had enough, the, the, the amount of staff. Um, it, it is said she doesn't have a great relationship with footballers. They mightn't necessarily talk with her. There's been divisions. One of, one of the problems, again, and, and it is racially motivated, people say to you, look, there's a divide among the Indigenous AFL people, amongst the First Nations people who are in the AFL landscape. You know, um, Jason Mifsud, formerly the most senior AFL official, didn't get on with Michael Long, for example. Alistair Clarkson mightn't get on with um, Ross. Well, he does get on with Ross Lyon. The tribes are divided. The tribes are fighting. It's such an anachronism. Like We have to just move on from D- this. Just finally, back onto the collateral damage. So this this implicates some of the most powerful men in the AFL. Andrew Newbold, the commissioner, has stood aside. He was president at the time and certainly was not prepared to stand up to his own supporters who booed Adam Goods, something that really troubled Cyril Rioli and others at the club. Um, Sean Burgoyne was at the club at the time, one of the most senior Indigenous people in the game and is devastated by the fact that he had no idea this was going on, which is just an indictment on how things were run at Hawthorne. Mark Evans, the head of footy, is now CEO of the Gold Coast. Alistair Clarkson has gone to North Melbourne and, you know, removed the footy boss, removed uh, several assistant coaches have gone. That football club has built its future around Alistair Clarkson. Well, regardless of whether these allegations are proven or not, his career is absolutely in the... the in the kitchen sink, I would think. Well, he's 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 in a bit of trouble, um, and he will. He has said he has said these allegations are untrue, and he will fight them. So we have to respect that. Chris Fagan, of course, as I said, the father figure who is coaching Brisbane. Then Jason Burt is someone who has also come out very poorly from the Russell Jackson piece. Um, he's not actually in a senior role at an AFL club at the moment, but so many others are, Corrie, and that is what you know. Luke Hodge was captain at the time. Sam Mitchell was in the leadership group, now coaching Hawthorne. Um, it's just extraordinary. The pe- and Graham Wright is now the football boss at the Collingwood Football Club. Um, although, you know, he hasn't been mentioned in these pieces, but all these men and their recollections have to be looked at and they must all be asking themselves whether they saw or were aware of any of this. Stuart Fox, one- I'm sorry, one more, is now the boss of the MCG. He was CEO at the club of the club at the time. Well, good luck, everybody, having a good hard look at yourself. The damage is done, allegedly. But uh, I think one step forward, Caro, would be for every AFL club and the AFL itself to have a good hard look at its board makeup and work overtly and constructively with the Indigenous community to get Indigenous men and women onto their boards, into positions of uh, authority, CEOs of club. Make it happen. Make it happen, White Australia. It's just we're lagging behind. This is just such an appalling example of how we we have this great divide between black and white Australia with people just not getting it, not getting those conversations, not getting how important they are. Powerful white men thinking they're doing the right thing. Sick of that. Sick of that, Caro. So on to powerful white women. (laughs) Um, I don't know how to do a segue between that important discussion and the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, I think it's impossible. So we'll just say that we know that Queen Elizabeth died on the 8th of September. Question, when are we going to learn what she actually died of? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure, Corrie. I mean... I've, I've scoured the media last night to see if there was any update. Nothing has been announced as to the cause of death. Whether it was her heart that gave out. Um, my sister thought she had cancer. I'm not sure about that. Look, 
he was 96. Mm. You know, he was 96. But even so, there should be a cause of death. Yeah, it's Anyway, go on. It's Con- continue your observations. Um, <clears throat> so I'm sure, well, I mean, all we need to say, and of course this also has caused a lot of trauma for a lot of First Nations Australians who have gone through the last two weeks. Now, this has been a, an elongated period of mourning and grieving and a very real mourning period for many Australians, obviously. And as much, Corrie, a mourning for a way of life that, um, and, and, a, and a, a link that she was to the past to now and, and the way she navigated that really so brilliantly. But, you know, for a lot of Indigenous Australians, it's been a reminder of our colonial past, of which the Queen is a major symbol, and it's been tough on them and, you know, and then this story happens. But, of course, for other Australians, they have not been able to get enough of what has happened over in, over in Great Britain in the last two weeks. And, you know, as a, as a, as a story, it has been extraordinary. I mean, the, the broadcasters cannot believe the ratings People have been glued to their television, not just for a week, but it's continued for 24-hour coverage. And channel, Channels 9 and 7, I know I haven't looked at the ABC ratings and, you know, the battle between the morning shows and the breakfast shows and the current affairs shows. They have, the, the resources they have put onto this have been completely justified. People, The ratings have been extraordinary. So isn't it amazing in grand final week your show was moved because of the funeral? Well, I mean, of course. <laughs> It was going to be moved anyway because the Brownlow was on. So oh yes, fair enough. Yeah, the Brownlow was moved yeah. because of the. But but I mean, I don't know about three million you. people lined three million Londoners or English people lined the streets of Windsor and of London to say farewell. We, three million. We um, I mean, it wasn't. It was so different, you know, to the the last sort of famous funeral, which is was of course the Princess of Wales, Diana, the Princess of Wales, because that was very much a um a more modern funeral, you know, there was music by um, rock rock singers, pop singers. There was um, that famous eulogy by her brother that, you know, is still being studied and looked at today. There was no, you know, family eulogy at the public service anyway. It was very much, look, there was a lot of ceremony. I thought the hymns were beautiful. I think people found it really, the, the bit I found emotional, I think, was the scarf on the horse, the Queen's scarf tied to the horse, just the corgis, um, think little touches about her life. And when the family saluted, mm. I thought that was, you know, incredibly moving. I felt very sad. There was a shot. I actually took it. Uh, I don't know why I was filming this particular. I thought I'm going to film this from when uh, the hearse pa- passed or went around the big circle in front of Buckingham Palace. And I took the perfect shot, actually, of the hearse right in front of the gates with her household either, either side. And I felt... I felt the, the, the power of, of history there. I think probably for me, Caro, watching it, I was as much, um, in, you know, yes, we're royal, we love being royal watchers and we talk a lot about the royal family for different reasons on this podcast, but uh, often our own amusement. But, but I really felt I had um, a, an amateur historian's hat on on Monday night. The traditions of which seemed quirky and peculiar but it's ever so meaningful. Taking, you know, the 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 chief, the cha- um, what's his role? The chief. Uh, anyway, I can't remember the name of the chap who who snaps his wand. The most senior member of the royal household snaps his wand and puts the broken wand on the coffin. Was he one of the verges? I loved all those verges. They were fascinating. I can't the... remember what his title was, but it was um, it was it was just amazing. Who are all these people? And you realise that these traditions go back hundreds of years. Lord Chamberlain. Lord Chamberlain. Thank you, Jane. That's who it was. Well, it was you, just... you needed to watch it with Anna from the Op Shop's husband, Chris, as I did, because he had done his research. Not only did he know all the marches, all the music, which um, band came from where, and what each march, because all those di- different steps and what they Fascinating. He'd been sitting up watching the rehearsals. So his running commentary... <laughs> That's was, really keen. It was... Um, we watched it with a group of friends. We did eat beautiful fish pie and eat smoked mussels. And we, we were going to drink Dubonnet, but it just... we Gin and Dubonnet didn't really cut it for us. But um, 
It was. Yeah, look, we it had, was. We had champagne. We just cracked open something it was, incredibly expensive and ridiculous. It was but an I, amazing Chris, occasion. Chris would probably, I'd love to know what Chris thought of the Russian contagion of The Departed, that beautiful, beautiful hymn sung at, by the St. George's Chapel Choir. Um, was utterly beautiful. I thought the St George's uh, element of it, the Windsor element, was way more poignant and, uh, well, certainly it was more intimate um, than Westminster Abbey, but it was it had way more of an impact on me than the earlier part of proceedings. Yeah, but Westminster looks so beautiful. And that shot, was it down the mall mm. or St James, when that, with, the, with the British flags? Yes, down the, down the mall, yeah. Oh, but what about the walk, the Windsor Long Walk? Yes. And the gardeners of the royal pa- of the palace had actually spent days arranging everyone's bouquets. So it looked like a, a sea, a, a, a grassland of flowers, wildflowers. It was absolutely stunning. I thought the family, a lot of them looked very tired oh, and really be. rung God, out. They marched along. They marched exhausted. a fair way. I mean, the last couple of weeks would have been... Anyway. There were some in, there were some funny moments. What about the spider that crawled out of of Prince Charles's own hand picked bouquet from Highgrove and, and and was there for two billion viewers to see on television? I did think of you. I did think of you with the um with the floral wreath on well, wasn't a wreath a um, bouquet whatever it was on top of the um, coffin. I thought you would have turned up your nose up at the Albertine, which was, you know, very yes. traditional. But um, I hated, I actually hated the bouquet because it didn't, it, it clashed terribly. With, but it was very, it was with very. The, with the St. George flag. And if you actually look at. It was very symbolic though, Corrie. No, I mean, no, it had the yes, rosemary know, and it could, had the. Could they have actually colour coordinated? I mean, look at Jane's poppies today, for example. The perfect colours of the, um, of the flag, uh, which covered the coffin. And, I mean, do you remember my mother's funeral when Fleur McCarg, the florist, they created were, the world's most beautiful, just poppy, covered in hundreds of poppies, Jane, hundreds oh, and hundreds of poppies. The entire coffin was covered. It was so beautiful. But these colours match it. I, w- I wasn't very impressed with I like the fact that it was sort of low-key and cottagey and personal. And every yes, but get your every, colours right, Charles. Well, every flower had a, had a symbol. I, I didn't keep needing to see Prince Andrew's big noggin bobbing up because he's got such a big head, you know, you couldn't miss him. And he just kept turning up behind the coffin and then, and then in the side. Oh, and I'm so, he's just appalling, especially if you're reading or listening to the Palace Papers by Tina Brown. Whoa, she, he's not one of her favourites. But um, look, usually I, I share these moments either with you or Joe, our friend and slave. And I could do neither on Monday night because it was my hubby Peter's birthday. He would have been a bit aghast if we'd left him. But so he, we just propped him up with champagne while Francesca Coco and I watched it, and um, he was getting very agitated. At one stage, when Liz Truss got up to give her reading, Pete said, um, "Oh, for God's sake, get on with it!" And we said, "Well, she can't actually because it's the second lesson from the Gospel of John. She can't kind of get on with it." I thought she did pretty well. I thought all the readings were lovely, but hasn't Liz Truss had a baptism of fire? Whoa. I mean, hasn't she been thrust into the world spotlight? I thought it was a bit, I mean, I know, realise this is completely trivial gossip, but what about poor old Prince Mary? Yes, Princess I know. Princess Mary. Princess Mary, Invited sorry, we don't in, have a seat for you. Well, sorry, it was a bit of an, because uh, we were, I was wondering, I saw Frederick and we did all ask ourselves where Mary was, invited and then embarrassingly uninvited. Bit of a protocol mistake. Shocking error. Shocking error. I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting when you look at some of the people who got there. Sandra O. Oh, from Killing Eve. I thought, what's Sandra O oh doing here? But it turns out she's um, some Canadian dignitary and was part of the Canadian delegation. Yes, Miss Jane's looking horrified. So, Corrie, um, we, look, we're going to move on to the cocktail cabinet, but I want to ask you just first a, a serious political question. What are the priorities now, top order priorities for King Charles? Okay, so the first thing I think he needs to do is get, get your, um, your home life operating, functioning properly. You know, he has to resolve this Meghan and Harry thing. They have to put the Kyber on the on the biography coming through or the memoir of, of Harry. They have to knit it together. He has to be seen to be leading his family out of the wilderness because if he can't lead, lead his family, how on earth can he possibly lead Great Britain <laughs> and us, dare I say? Uh, wasn't it funny um, singing God or listening to God Save the King? You know, in our lifetime, Carol, we'll never hear God Save the Queen again. Unless there's some horrendous 
um, circumstances and events. No, but we won't. Not in our no. lifetime. No, we won't. So that was that was sort of interesting for me. No, yeah. I, I think clearly he has to be. He and Camilla have to be, and and um, William and Kate have to be um, on the hustings through through winter this year. It's got, as we've said on other podcast episodes, this is going to be a horrendous winter for. For British people, uh, in terms of energy bills, um, the NHS is starved of funding. As they come out of post-COVID, they've really got to get their act together. And the royals have to be seen to be around and about. Well, he's clearly got Australia on his agenda and it'll be interesting to see how he deals with the Republican debate, which will surely emerge. But I agree with Anthony Albanese. I think that the... um, Indigenous question and the referendum next year has to be the priority ahead of Australia becoming a republic. And um, back to being shallow again, I think we'll see a lot more of um, Princess Anne. Oh, I think so too. The connection between the two of them was palpable, wasn't it? They really are a wonderfully um, close-knit brother and sister, and I admire that. Charles has to cut out Andrew for all the obvious reasons, and none the least of which he's probably been left a pile of dough from his mother, I would have imagined, the Queen would have foreseen that the the only issue for Andrew really is his um, his security. So she's probably left him a pile of dough, and as just and Charles now can quite rightfully and comfortably put him over there out of the inner royal sanctum. Do you think he'll charge expenses for the corgis? <laughs> I just thought poor corgis, didn't you? Oh well, it doesn't just because. I mean, we're... Fergie and Andrew's ask. There are so many other places I'd rather be living. <laughs> Very, very dodgy, dodgy couple. Anyway, look, it's um, it's been a, an amazing couple of weeks and I think what, you know, the Australian government will have seen was those ratings and that interest. Now, was it an interest in a moment in history? Was it a, a, a genuine grieving process for the Queen? I think it was probably a mixture of... Mm, I think so too. All, all of the above. We just ran into um, the wonderful Daisy Pierce, Miss Jane and I... Um, as we walked in to record this podcast. And I thought her explanation of how, um, why she supported the decision not to have the minute silence before the AFLW Games um, in the days that followed the Queen's death was so well explained. And I say again, I just don't know why the AFL even thought it would be appropriate to do it for the women's game, given that it was the AFLW Indigenous round. It was a pity because it caused such divisions and it was... And un- yeah, it was a, a really strange misstep. Anyway, Corrie, we need a drink. So welcome to Miles Thompson and a very, very appropriate topic this week, Miles. We're going to talk about what to drink while we're watching the grand final or for Geelong or Sydney fans celebrating the premiership. And um, I hear you have some uh, sparkling wines on your list today. Yeah, three sparkling, different price points. So I guess whether you're commiserating or celebrating, whatever, hopefully something to suit everyone. Oh, okay. Like, like um, in the words of that famous, <laughs> the guy I was sitting in front of in the footy a few years ago and he put his arm around his wife and said, we'll be drinking Crown Lager tonight, Dale. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to be drinking Crown Lager, He's a Miles. Supporter. We get, we're, we're off. We're off on the uh, the sparkling route with you. So what's the first one that you can suggest we pick up? Yeah, so the first one, we just, I actually just tried it this week and thought it was a, probably just the convenient worked out well to talk, sort of talk about and the hanging rock uh, sparkling. So it's just their cheap little NV. So hanging, hanging rock here in, in Victoria. Um, and yeah, it's just wonderful. It's, I mean, $20 and it is just very clean, easy drinking, sparkling, you know, it's not, not anything too complex or anything, but just really sort of great, great little bubbles for the money. Um, you know, it's got more going on than say like a Prosecco or anything like that, like a nice little cheap Aussie Prosecco. It's got a little bit finer bubble and it's got a little bit more going on there, but still pretty, pretty easy to knock back. So that's the first one. Sounds delicious. And, um, is there, is there a vineyard called the Hanging Rock Winery? Yes, there is. I've never been there. Oh, there is. They do a couple of really good, um, reds actually. They do a good Shiraz from memory. Um, yeah, I think we... Might have the Shiraz in the store too. Funnily enough, now that I think about it, and it's not expensive and quite good. I thought. And they have one called the Jim Jim Pinot Noir, which is not inexpensive, yeah. but I love that. Yeah, and, and you know Pinot and Chardonnay—that's you know that very cool climate in the Macedon, so they're, they're usually going to do quite well there. So, and obviously this is a Pinot. I'm pretty sure it's a Pinot Chardonnay based sparkling, so which is, you know, 
the, the most common sort of sparking that you see. So in Brownlow parlance, I guess we're starting with the one vote in terms of price. Um, <laughs> what's number two, Miles? So number two is uh, called Deosa, and it's out of Adelaide Hills. Um, Can you spell that, please? Deosa, so D-A-O-S-A. Uh-huh. And it is, um, so it is like a method traditional style. So it's made like champagne. It's made in bottle. Pinot Chardonnay blend spends quite a lot of time on lees, which is what gives champagne that bready, yeasty, um, croissant sort of bread dough thing they talk about. And this has that. It's definitely, you know, it's a much more premium style. It's uh, got extra time aging, which is where you get all the character from. And, yeah, for the, all the wines from Dose are really fantastic. Their sparklings are excellent. And this is their, um, I think they call it their, their reserve, and it's a non-vintage, so a blend of multiple vintages. Um, but, yeah, it's fantastic for the money. Uh, we love these Dose sparklings. If you ever see any of them anywhere, they're always worth trying. They're, they're, they're excellent. But this is $48, so it sits in that nice sort of mid-price point for a, for a good Aussie sparkling, for a very good Aussie sparkling. From the Adelaide Hills. That's fantastic. The Daosa, yeah. and that's D-A-O-S-A. And three votes. <laughs> and then next one is uh, Meadowbank. And this is from Tassie. Now, obviously, Tassie's perfect for sparkling. It has been grown uh, grapes, again, Pinot Chardonnay, for a long time for sparkling base. You know, um, Chandon have sourced their um, sparkling for a long time, but a lot of other great sparkling producers as well. Um, and this is Meadowbank, and this is their late disgorge vintage, so it spends a lot of time on lease. So this drinks like, really, it drinks like champagne, and it's sort of priced the same as well. Again, a Pinot Chardonnay blend, which is what they do so well down there, um, and it's a 2016, um, yeah, um, late late disgorge. So that means all this extra time on lease. I think it's, I don't know, five or six years, something like that. So all that wonderful, smoky, Brady, you know, that, that sort of biscuit character, that really fine, fine bubbles, that really fine, fine bead that you see from, from these styles, um, that really lovely toasty sort of character that you see with that extra ageing time as well. And this is, I think, $78. So this is your your premium celebrate or commiserate, I guess. doesn't really three, matter. But I'm pleased that you've, uh, you've um, chosen three Aussie sparklings there, Miles. Well, I thought that was the way to go. I thought if we were talking talking grand final, we we should stick to Australia to celebrate. So, Miles, the- no, no, they sound fantastic. So we start at Hanging Rock with a sparkling um, $20. Then we go to the Adelaide Hills, the Deosa, uh, a method traditional $48. And the three votes, the Meadowbank from Tasmania, that another Pinot Chardonnay blend. 2016, did you say? I think 2016, yeah, late disgorge. So, and that's 78. And do we get a discount on top of that or is that the, with the discount? No, you still get your discount on that. So 10% off uh, when you put in the code M-E-S-S um, on the cart when you go to check out on the, the Prince Wine Store website. Fabulous, Miles. Thank you very much. Thanks, Miles. Wonderful. And that was the cocktail cabinet brought to us by Prince Wine Store. Don't forget to save the date. Come and visit us, Corrie at Prince Wine Store on Wednesday, the 26th of October. We're going to be there between 5 and 7 o'clock. A casual drop-in. We'll be having a chat with Miles in store. We'll be answering a few listener questions from our guests. We'll have a tasting or two, and there will be 15% discounts, I believe, for our friends of Don't Shoot the Messenger if they come in and buy some wine. I picked up my Spring Mix Dozen yesterday from Prince Wine Store, and I must say it looks Fabulous. Well, I think, Miles, that might be one of the focuses of attention for our Carol and Corrie propping up the bar night, actually, the spring special. Maybe we can get through all dozen of them. Corrie, it's time for BSF, and you are going to talk to us, quite appropriately, I believe, um, about Jock Sarong's new novel, Our Favourite. Now, this is the third in the trilogy, and it's called The Settlement. It is indeed, Caro, the third and final in in his celebrated Ferno Island trilogy, which, of course, kicked off with the first novel, Preservation, uh, which came out about four years ago, and then and that was set in 1797 in Sydney town. And uh, the second novel, The Burning Island, which was published 
in 2020 picked up the story of Joshua Grayling and the menacing Mr Fig a couple of decades after their previous encounter. And now we have the settlement set in Tasmania and Flinders Island in Bass Strait. And writer Robbie Arnott Caro describes this as Jock Sarong's finest work and a story Australians should hear. It is a different beat to the other two, the previous two in the Ferno Island series. This is a very uh, mournful, uh, a slower read, uh, but nonetheless um, intense and utterly gripping. It's the fictional account of the journey of George Augustus Robinson, a most complicated character, um, real-life character in, in Australia's um, early European settlement history. He was he arrived in Hobart in 1824 and he established himself as a builder and he also joined the committee of the Bible Society and he saw himself as in, in a sort of a, an evangelical missionary kind of way of, of um, wanting to help the, um, the First Nations people as they were being rounded up and systematically slaughtered by Governor Arthur of Van Diemen's Land. This story begins with George Robinson uh, touring through the plains and hills of uh, remote Tasmania with an, a couple of Indigenous assistants and they are trying to round up people who are left, basically. So he, he gathers together group people from different tribes and he has talked the governor into allowing him to take them to a place of refuge, which is uh, an, this particular island, on well, Flinders Island on Bass Strait. And there they set up a settlement called Waibalina, which history tells us George Robinson eventually abandoned to secure a better gig at the newly established Port Phillip district. So all of that is true. But what Jock's done is he starts the story with, uh, with looking at why George Robinson is so, so hell-bent on taking on this difficult um, you know, task. And then we flip the second part of the novel. We're on the island with and the settlement's been in um, probably there for a couple of years by the time we join it. And there are some deeply disturbed characters in charge of the settlement who are working at the settlement. And of course, George Robinson is the one in charge, known only as the Commandant in um, Sarong's book. Caro, does Mr. Fig appear on this island? Remember, he was shot in the head. Of by... course he does. <laughs> He was shot in the head in the, as we, uh, as we like left. like an it. evil piece of bamboo in every one of them. So you're making it sound pretty grim. It is pretty grim. Did it you enjoy it grim. though? Oh, I loved it. But what it does is it really pokes and prods in all sorts of difficult areas of our history. First of all, the systematic genocide of Tasmanian um, Indigenous folk is just something that we are continuing to learn more and more about. Thank you also to The Guardian for all their great work on this too. But Jock has picked up this story, and um, and I think he's really given it some um, some flesh and blood. Um, not only from the from I mean he he has said himself it was difficult to write from an indigenous perspective, and he really can't imagine what what those characters are going through. But from the point of view of this really um, misguided Robinson, who who started off wanting to save them and setting up a, a you know beloved Jesus uh, settlement on this island and then suddenly realises this isn't working and uh, and immediately sets his sight on getting a better gig over the way where they've just discovered, John Batman's just discovered Melbourne. So his political ambition gets the better of his um, religious um, mission. It's just such a complicated and amazing story but Carol, I adored it. I read it in two days it is a slow beginning, but you have to get into the pace of it and you have to understand why Jock has written it as they climb and walk through the hills and the, and the, the valleys of beautiful Tasmania. Uh, you know, it, it just really sets it up for the second part of the novel, which it has a bit of a faster pace and a lot of sadness. And it's a dark and dreadful moment in Australia's early European settlement history, but I thoroughly recommend the settlement. By Jock Sarong. And you're on a roll, Corrie. Um, what have you been watching on screen? And is, am I right? It's got a royal flavour. It does. So, Caro, a few weeks ago, I logged into Becoming Elizabeth, which premiered in June on Stan. There are only eight episodes. I'm not sure whether they're doing a second series. My goodness, I hope so. I didn't even do my research on that. Unusual for me not to know whether it's coming up again. But this is the this, this focuses on the early years of Elizabeth I, 
um, one of Henry the Henry VIII's three children. Um, her brother, um, it, it, this begins at the death of Henry and her brother, her youngest half-brother, Edward VI, becomes king. And it is, um, it's what sort of a, a, impacts her and her other half-sister, Mary, who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon and uh, 15 or 20 years older than the young Elizabeth. We need to remember that Elizabeth never expected to be queen. She had a brother, she had an older sister, and there was the pesky cousin in Lady Jane Grey who was queen for just nine days. When Edward VI died, he didn't want Mary, who was a Catholic, to take over. But that was then thrown out the window um, and um, poor old Jane lost her head, as so many of them do. But this focuses on those immediate years following Henry's death the tensions between the Catholics and the Protestants of England and the politics vying for control over this nine-year-old king and his uncle, Ed, Edward Seymour, who becomes Lord Protector. Elizabeth, Princess Elizabeth is seen as a pawn, a chattel who might be traded in marriage to one of the Europe's princes, but no one, or maybe one or two, no one realises that Elizabeth is smart, she's canny, she's politically um, ambitious, She's innately political, actually. Played brilliantly, I might say, by German actress Alicia Grafen von Richberg, who I had never heard of. She has a, a pretty terrific um, repertoire of work in German movie and television world. Um, she's fabulous in this role. And um, the other one I would point out is Romola Sadie Garay, which who many will remember and you will carry. Remember the young Briny in the 2007 movie Atonement? Yep, and and she was also in um, I Capture the Castle. She was, that's she's right. She's a wonderful. I lo- I've not seen her for a while, and I wondered what she'd been up to. Well, she's she's um, she's looking a little bit older, but as she should, because Mary, I think, is in her early thirties when all of this is happening, and she is just faith tortured and angry as and just um, so hell bent on um, on not giving up her church, despite her brother, the king, demanding that she does. So brilliant role played there. Wasn't she in the hour, the hour as well? I don't know. Yeah, the, that wonderful show um, about the, um, the sort of the BBC you, with Dominic oh, West. No, I never saw that. Oh, that was oh, that thank was, you. Another, was no, another one show. on the list. Oh, it anyway, was on the ABC. We're obsessed by that. That's becoming Elizabeth, which uh, obviously for for um, <laughs> for obvious reasons was my pick this week, and it's on Stan. Highly recommend. And if anybody knows whether they're making a second series, can you let me know? Now, Carol, what are we eating this week? You mentioned that you were inspired by royal proceedings. What have you cooked? I am. And um, it's not me who's cooked it. It's Joe Campion. She made for her royal funeral night deconstructed mini beef wellingtons. And they look amazing. Um, The picture in the recipe will be on our show notes. She did a wonderful job. Um, Now, I've I love, I, I, you never eat beef wellington anymore, except that our, our friend Jane Lamerton made it famously at a sort of 70s dinner party a couple of years ago, and it was extraordinary. I think she took a whole day to make, to cook down the duck cell, is it? The the mushroom <laughs> yeah, component? The, correct, and the pate. Anyway, um, this, Joe Joe just, I think she bought puff pastry. She egg washed a sheet and cut it into 16 rounds. To make the duck cells, uh, 500 grams of mushrooms, finely chopped in a food processor, fried up with 50 grams of butter and mushroom stock, and a mushroom stock cube or a chicken stock cube, whatever you've got, until they are nice and brown. Add two finely chopped shallots, fry for another two minutes, add a good slash of brandy, chopped tarragon and cream, 100 mils of cream. Um, He's got a famous slow-roasted eye fillet recipe. This is a cold... It's a cold suggestion to pass around. Um, she, you, have you done her slow-cooked eye fillet? I, I do it all the time, and she must get sick of me because of different ovens in my life. Every time I have a different oven, I have to text her and just say, what do you reckon? Is it three hours? Are you sure it's three she hours? Says, she says it doesn't matter the oven. It doesn't matter the eye fillet, piece of eye fillet. 70 degrees for three hours. I know. I know. It sounds amazing. But it works. So you do that. And then um, once um, the beef's cooked and you've let it rest, you smear the cold pastry round with pate. He bought the uh, store-bought ARC, ARC brand. Then you place a piece of eye-fillet on top, top it with the duck cells and the chives. She says it was a huge hit. 
Now, doesn't that sound delicious? Absolutely delicious. What a great idea. And not as hard as actually doing the whole, you know, big mother of a beef wellington. I like the fact that she, instead of calling it a roast beef cold suggestion, she's calling it a deconstructed beef, beef wellington. It's, it's deconstructed it is. beef wellington. No, it is. It is. That was BSF Yum. for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't a time you called Red Energy? The number is 131806. Corrie, you are grumpy. I'm grumpy. Uh, you know, you and I think that it's going to be a quiet news week next week. Well, just watch uh, Vladimir Putin. And also, it, we're coming into election season here in Victoria. I was pretty upset to see that there was a proposal to rename the Maroondah Hospital Queen Elizabeth II Hospital Caro. In fact, I was beyond um, perplexed. I was really angry about it. Um, Victorian Premier Dan Andrews tweeted about the decision, saying it was a mark of respect to the Queen's unwavering commitment to healthcare and our community. And he also announced an upgrade for the East Ringwood Hospital. But plans to rename the Maroondah Hospital is so disrespectful to our First, First Nations community. Once again, we're just not getting it right. The Wurundjeri Wulurong people of the Kulin Nation are the traditional custodians of this land and Maroondah is an Aboriginal word that means, um, Maroon means leaves and throwing and it is incredibly significant to this culture. Jill Gallagher, Gallagher, who is the CEO of Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, said that it having um, things like this named after in, an, in an Aboriginal language gives us a sense of pride for ourselves and a people, close quote. Uh, and it makes Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people visible. Well, now we are suggesting that we make them invisible, invisible, by calling it the Queen Elizabeth II Hospital. That's how I feel about that, Caro. Well said, Corrie. Um, I've got mixed views on it, but anyway, that's your opinion and good on you. Corrie, we're now going to kick off six quick questions with your traditional time-honoured Brownlow Medal Night 321. And remember, three is the best, Corrie, and one is the worst. It's like a brown low Thanks vote. for reminding me. Um, look, I've, God, I've been doing this since about, oh, I don't know, 1981 in the age. Okay. It's First, much easier to do one. it from the TV than if you're there, I have to say. Oh, because, yeah. So what did you wear? I haven't asked you. I wore the same Bianca Spender dress I wore to Rose's wedding. Oh, I was beautiful. pretty happy. Yeah. Oh, you would have got a few compliments on that. You look gorgeous oh, yeah. in the photos it of the wedding. Probably wasn't, uh, you know, full black. I, I was happy with it. I did I did love Kylie Rogers' dress, that bright pink number. She was one of the ones up on the... Yes, I think you must have... You should have probably seen that in real life, my feeling is, because it did look a bit... I did look a bit wedding cake-ish in the photos. But um, first, number one vote to Caitlin Seto is the partner of Lions champ Carl, uh, Charlie Cameron. And she had a Kelly Green formal evening gown with a wrap, with that wrap style neck that's so popular, just sitting on the on on the shoulders, um, and a tight bodice and a long flowing skirt. Carol, I don't know if you saw that in real life, but the Kelly Green just popped in the photographs. It must have been absolutely beautiful in real life. My number two vote goes to Annalise Dallins, who is the partner of Josh Dacos. I. Look, many, many traditionalists... I, well, Brendan and I walked in with them and I said hello to Josh because I caught up with his mum, Colleen, at the Sydney Swans game last Saturday night. She's a great girl. That was beautiful. Okay, so potties know that I'm I'm not one for having splits and slits all over the place. You have one or you have two, but you don't have your bosom showing, your leg, high leg, waist, you know, like, please, everybody, get the balance right. I thought Annalise Dallins, even though there was a fair bit of skin and boy, was it a great bod showing, it was actually a really um, sexy and demure kind of outfit. So it was a, it was a, it was in white or cream, ivory colour, and it was a, uh, almost like a jersey. It looked like um, skirt with a waistband that just sat, and it just sat just below her navel. The reason I know this is because I can see her navel in the photo (laughs) and it's like she has a bra top on. But it has long sleeves and a high neck. Now, if, you, if you're having trouble picturing this, just um, type in Annalise Dallin's 2022 red carpet and you'll see what I mean. I thought it was absolutely got the balance right. It was stunning. It was new. It was different. And then my third vote goes to Emma Hawkins, wife of Tom, in a black evening gown, again with the wrap-like neckline and a really beautiful train. And there are many reasons I'm giving Emma this award. Um, she looked beautiful. She had a she had their third child only a few weeks ago, 
But I did want to just... Um, Unfortunately, she wasn't in the room because they didn't want to get COVID. So um, Geelong sat in a separate room in Oh, Crown. I didn't know that. Yep. And, and had Collingwood um, one on the weekend, they would have been in a separate room too. I didn't know that, Kara. Well, there you go. Well... Anyway, she posted, she, she has, you know, gazillion followers on her Instagram account, which is actually a really great Instagram account. I enjoy it. But she said, um, just in case any other new mums are looking at this and thinking I'm breezing through a new mum life, please don't. This is not a real reflection. I'm ragged tired and living in my active wear most days and very much feeling all of those normal postpartum insecurities and feelings. Social media is an interesting thing. Special mention to Danny Laidley in that glamorous white evening gown. Good on you, Danny. Yes, I saw Danny. I saw um, there was. I was amazed actually. There was a lot of white. It was like people were making statements after people wearing black on TV news and current affairs for the last ten days. A lot, a lot of white, including Beck Madden. Except the they would. Have, they, except they would have planned their outfits weeks ago. White is the big colour for for summer. I know Anna and you have discussed on the podcast, pink is the big colour, but white is huge. Well, it certainly was on Brownlow night and maybe they did all plan it weeks ago, but it it felt like a bit of a coming out of a period of, of mourning oh, for me. Lovely. Actually. Um, and what's your favourite public holiday, Caro? Well, I, we talk about this because we sit here on an unscheduled public holiday, don't we, Corrie? Melbourne, people who live in Victoria have got lots of public holidays this week. Um Boxing Day by far is my favourite public holiday. One, because it's one of the few public holidays nobody argues about. There's no political argument about whether we should have it or whether it's got any religious significance or not. It's the best day. Anyone who loves the day after a big meal and leftovers, sitting around and actually enjoying your presents and not actually being, even if you've only got a few presents, not having to worry about rushing around and doing this and doing that. The weather's usually fabulous. The cricket starts. The the, the Boxing Day test. There's a feeling, a luxurious feeling of um, relaxation I get on that day that I don't get on any other public holiday. Corrie, what would be your perfect, your idea of the perfect Melbourne monument to Queen Elizabeth II? The Queen Elizabeth II racetrack. Oh, that's a good idea. Instead I mean, of Flemington. Well, Flemington or Mooney Valley. I mean, Sandown's now going to God, as I think. What about Caulfield? Um, well, you could call it Caulfield. But I, I just think it's. A, I think that would be a lovely thing to do for one of them to call it the Queen Elizabeth II racetrack. And I'd also like to, and this is the traditionalist in me, Caro, only for, from an historical perspective, a statue in the King's Domain because there's a statue of Queen Victoria and at the very least, if we're going to do monarchs, let's do Queen Elizabeth, who had the longest reign. And I must say, when I walk through the Ballarat Gardens, um, Botanic Gardens, with my grandchildren, we always walk down the avenue of the Prime Ministers and we always talk about the statues and I give them my limited knowledge of some and my political views of others. And um, it's always a prompt for good discussion. So I would say put a statue there of uh, the Queen. Caro, in this dismal Melbourne spring, oh, God, you're right with that. What's been your biggest floral success story? Nicori, don't turn your nose up. I know they're not your favourite oh, flower. don't say gerberas. Clivias. Oh. The clivias this year, I've got um, the, the short, thick, fat, you know, green leaf ones with the orange in my back courtyard at home. I have never, and I, I did a big job of separating them this year. So they have, not only do they replant beautifully I and they separate just... separate them out of my garden. They spring I'm up separating again. separating you. I've, 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 I've taken some down to the beach. They are more abundant than I have ever seen. And I've got a bunch of cream clivias that cost a bomb. And I think I was, mum gave me three little tiny, tiny um, cuttings, oh, probably about 10, 12 years ago. When we moved house, I took them away, planted them down at the beach. They've sat there for ages. Some died, but most of them survived. Got a few flowers here and there. There is, I reckon I've got about 12 flowers on my little, and they've, I've now got about nine of them, 12 or 13 different cream flowers. I think they are the most beautiful plant. Mm, whoopsie do I really you. do. And they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And a lot of things haven't flourished, but do you know, they have. Do you know what I've spied girls in my garden this week? What popped up? The very first aspa asparagus. Um, the very first agapanthus bud has oh, appeared. How lo Well, they are, you know, obviously official weeds. I love them too, but... <laughs> 
I wouldn't be boasting. I prefer them over a Clivia. I'll tell you that. I think Clivias are beautiful, and they work well in a vase. I've had, I've had so many. I've done big fat bunches in vases. Corrie, in this back at you, in this dismal Melbourne spring, what seasonal vegetable has made a welcome return to your kitchen? Asparagus. Oh, you were going to get to that. Yeah, I was. I know. I sort of jumped the gun White, with the purple A. purple or the traditional green? Um, no, we just had the traditional green the other night. The price has been dropping, everybody. It's a bit like the iceberg lettuce. Week by week, it's going down, down, down. So we picked up some inexpensive asparagus and we and both we we had no one else in the house with us except the kids. They'd eaten. We, were a bit, we were, weren't very hungry, so Checker just put them in the oven with oil and salt for 10 to 15 minutes. We had some tomatoes on the vine with olive oil and a bit of sugar, a burrato, avocado cut up, and I'd made a pesto a couple of days earlier. The perfect meal, Caro, and we just felt so spring-like. Beautiful. So asparagus, the heirloom tomatoes, burrata, no, not, air, not heirloom, just little vi- on the vine, little ones. And olive oil, uh, 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 put tomatoes with olive oil and a bit of sugar. And then the burrata sitting on it and avocado cut up because we just had an avocado there. And the pesto on the top was just brilliant. How delicious. There's a free recipe for you. Now, Caro, what's this week's amazing fact? Well, Corrie, this crossed my desk the other day. I wasn't aware um, that these two men were such... Um, well, I knew they were artists, but not in the sort of art that I realised. Have you ever been to Finland? <laughs> you know I've never been to Finland. I've always wanted no, to go. No, I've never been to Finland and I've always wanted to go to no, Finland. No, you spent time in Scandinavia. You yes, might have I popped did. in no, without no, me I knowing. Well, I've heard about this um, this art museum called the Sara Hilden Art Museum. It's in Tampere, T-A-M-P-E-R-E. It sounds like the most beautiful museum. Um, this week... An exhibition was opened by Brad Pitt and Nick Cave. What? Brad Pitt and Nick Cave um, have opened this new exhibition. Um, it's a joint exhibition. So they with... love the artist, obviously. No, it's their work. It's their oh, art. Oh, their work. That's the amazing oh. fact. So Nick Cave um, has um, exhibited glazed ceramic figurines to lift, depicting the life of Satan, very Nick Cave, oh. in 17 stations, from innocence through experience into confrontation of our mortality. It's clearly a must-have. And Brad Pitt, he's got nine sculptures on exhibition, nine sculptures, and one of them's called Self-Inflicted Gunshot Wound to the House, which is made of trap bullets crystallised in platinum silicon. Anyway, did you know that in the small town of Tampere in Finland, at the Sara Hilden um, Art Museum, these two men have opened an exhibition and their work is on display there? Be there or be square. Another reason to get to Finland. I would love to go to Finland. Me too. Corrie, a bit close to the Russian border at the moment for comfort, but yes. we'll probably have World War Three to talk about next week, Carol. Oh, that is it, not a joke. It is. Um, it's been, um, it's a, yeah, it's impossible to articulate what has been, uh, and the, the heartbreak and the tragedy to, to think we're still suffering wars on this scale. It's just, and with the, the weapons at Russia's disposal, it's, it's very scary. Corrie, on a happier note, I've enjoyed seeing you today. Oh, thank you, Caro. On this I've public holiday. You too. Now, ladies, I've just popped a little box on the desk for you. This is from the lovely Claire, who is, of course, Craig Hutchison's partner. When we spoke to her, was Corrie, that must have been nearly two years ago on the show. Yeah, it was. I remember Caro was in Amsterdam on her first trip, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah it was about 16, uh, yeah, yeah, 16 months this ago. This is beautiful, a series of oils from her new company. So Ello is the company, and I've been following them on Instagram since Claire introduced us to it. It smells smell it. gorgeous. Ello Botanicals, E-double-L-O, and in this box, thank you, Claire. That's so kind. Three we, beautiful facial oils, Corrie. We've Restore Facial Oil, Balance Facial Oil and Uplift Facial Oil. So if you've been hearing about serums and all that sort of stuff, this is the natural end of things. <gasps> Look at the beautiful little bottle. And a dropper. <gasps> I love, I the, love the, the pastel colours of the little oh. boxes they come in. Oh, Claire, what a beautiful blue. gift. What a wonderful business she's developed. Look at all the packaging. Not a skerrick of plastic inside, ladies. So anyway, the challenge Do is... Do you use facial oil? I actually started using it every night now. Yeah, you now. have to because when you go through menopause, your skin dries up. And, of course, the 
the most sensitive part of our body are our faces and our cheeks. So, yes, we must start using oil, everybody. I've run out and I'm going to try this for the next week or so. Ladies, you can try and I think we should give Clara a review. We won't recognise each other when we walk in next week. We'll be and so beautiful they and all, fresh. They all come with Tasmanian Boronia extract, as Corrie said. How gorgeous. Mm. I know she was sourcing oils and extracts from around the country. So we'll, we'll check it out and we'll put the link in the show notes. Thank you to our podcast supporters again, Med Energy, of course, 100% Australian electricity and gas, and of course, the wonderful Prince Wine Store. Go and buy their mixed spring dozen. It's fabulous. Visit princewinestore.com.au and click on the Don't Shoot the Messenger page for all Miles' recommendations and special discounts. You can uh, connect with us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to get our show notes delivered to your inbox every week, just hit the sign up button on Facebook or in our show notes or send us an email and we'll subscribe you. The email again is feedback at don'tshootpod.com. Dot com dot au. And don't forget to come and visit us on October the 26th at Prince Wine Store in Bank Street, South Melbourne, between 5 and 7 o'clock for lots of wine tastings, chats and discounts. Can I just ask a question without notice? Who are you going for in the grand final? Geelong. Well, I mean, I, no, I'm tipping Geelong. Who are you going for? I, I, I have no skin in the game. I don't no, care. No, but you, we, we, you know what happens, though. It, when, I have when, a huge admiration for both clubs. But you know what happens, the first bounce of the ball and you suddenly, if you don't barrack for one of the teams, you're galvanised to barrack for one. Who do you think you'll be barracking for? I'll have to tell you after the event. Oh, okay. Well, can I just say, don't shoot the messenger and go Catters. Go Robbie Williams too, by the way. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's Most Trusted Energy Providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au.